Pepper floppy days. Commodore. Candy floppy days. Atari. TI floppy days. The weekend comes. The disk drive hums. Ready to code for you. These days we're all happy and free. Those floppy days. The games we play. You shared with me those days. Rolling Tell 6502. The history of personal computing. History, history, history. Hey everyone, and welcome to our combined podcast live here at the VCF SC 3.0. And uh, I'm David Grillish, and I'm one of the hosts of the History of Personal Computing podcast. And we have Jeff Salzman coming in through Skype. Say hi, Jeff. Hello. How is everybody? Like I can hear. What They're all jumping say. up, jumping up, down, saying good. We also Wonderful. have Randy Kindig. So his is the Floppy Days podcast. Hello, everyone. And so welcome again to this special edition of the history of floppy days. Uh, I mean, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, personal computing. That's not right, no. So anyway, we're live here again, and it's a little past noon, and we're gonna get started. We're gonna talk about three significant machines that are being featured out in the show. Um, and so we're gonna talk about them. And the three are first, the DEC PDP-8, which is celebrating its fifth, 50th anniversary. And then it's the 40th anniversary of the Altair uh, 8800 by MITS. And then lastly, it's the 30th anniversary of the Commodore Amiga. So we're going to go in an age order. Oh, wait, first off, anything? Got anything to say, Randy? Having a good time? Having a great time. I want to tell uh, Jeff, someday we're going to actually meet up. We never actually met in person. Did you hear that, Jeff? I just hear a lot of the echo. Technical limitations here. We have to talk to Jeff here on this microphone. I was, I was just saying, one of these times we're going to have to actually get to the same show so we actually meet up. You going to the Midwest? I'll be in Midwest. Why, are you going to be there? I'm looking to be there. All oh, right. yeah, Jeff and I are planning to go to the VCF Midwest in the Chicago area in August. So, yeah, the three of us can do something yeah, there. Yeah, there we go. So, so that'll be good. Um, Jeff, anything new with you you want to say? No, not too much. Just finally enjoying the warm weather up here in the Northeast. You've been following some of the pictures I've been tweeting? Yes, it looks like a pretty busy place. A lot of uh, floor layout, uh, easy to walk around. And uh, we just did a show on the ZX Spectrum and the Coco computers. And I think I already tweeted the, those pictures of the Coco display, didn't I? Did you see those? Or, or take a look if, I, if you have it. I don't recall the Coco display, but I do. I did see the other ones, and they all look really nice. So anyway, Randy, take it away. He's gonna, you're going to talk about the uh, DEC PDP-8. Yeah, as, uh, as David said, we're going to start out with the machine having the 50th anniversary, which is pretty amazing, 50 years, and that's the DEC PDP-8. I'm going to preface this by saying I am not an expert on the PDP-8, although I do have a very small amount of personal experience with it. When I was uh, at, well, I started my master's degree at the University of Louisville, and um, the first class I took was on assembly language programming, and they used a PDP-8 as the machine that we learned uh, assembly language programming on. 
So I remember they blocked out time for each of us to sit down at the box, you know, write the program, uh, flip all the switches, move to the next memory location, flip the next switches, and so on, and then run our program and prove that it would run and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, even in 1980 when I was doing that, that was a pretty old machine to be doing anything on, but uh, I do at least have that experience on the, on the PDP-8. So let's talk a little bit about the PDP-8. It was developed by Digital Equipment Corporation, which was uh, organized by Ken Olson and Harlan Anderson in 1957. So, you know, that was, actually that was the year I was born, so that was definitely a long time ago. And the PDP-8 was developed by them and is considered the first successful mini-computer First, uh, first successful commercial mini-computer. And the chief engineer who actually designed that was Edson de Castro, and he later went on and founded Data General. It was introduced in March 1965 and sold more than 50,000 systems by the time it was done, and the most of any computer up to that date. And it was the most widely sold computer in the DEC PDP line. And there was an entire line, which I'll talk about here in a minute. It was a 12-bit computer, interestingly. So that was uh, pretty different than a lot of the other machines that were out there. And it was sold as a CPU with 4K of memory, 4K of 12-bit memory, 100 baud, teletype interface and an ASR33 teletype. The earliest PDP-8 was known as the straight eight and it used diode transistor logic and was about the size of a small refrigerator. That was followed by the PDP-8S which was available in desktop and rack mount models and there were some later systems like the PDP-8L, PDP PDP-8i, E, F, M, and A. So there are a lot of different models of the PDP-8. The last commercial models were developed in 1979 and they were CMOS based. They had custom CMOS microprocessors. But by that time, there were, you know, a lot of the microcomputers had come out and the PDP-8 was having difficulty competing and it wasn't pr priced very competitively, competitively with those. The early PDP-8s didn't even have an operating system. They just had the front panel with run and halt switches. Like I mentioned when I sat down and, and flipped the switches and moved from memory location to memory location. So it was pretty basic. You had to actually sit down and uh, you know, punch everything in basically. Later on, there were various paper tape-based operating systems. There were many utility programs that were available. PAL-8 was known as the, um, PAL was the uh, PDP-8 assembly language, and that often was stored on paper tape, read into memory, and then uh, I, think, I think when, when I took the class, I think we actually did save our programs to paper tape, as I recall. I think that's the only time I ever used paper tape in my career. There were actually paper tape versions of languages like Fortran 
and focal. And then toward the end of the PDP-8 era, there were operating systems such as OS-8, which were more traditional operating systems and allowed you to run programming languages like Fortran and BASIC. And then even later, there were uh, advanced operating systems like uh, there was a real-time system called RTS-8 and other multi-user commercial systems and a dedicated word processing system for it. By 1975, with the introduction of the Altair and some of the other personal computers that came out a little later, they pretty much dominated the market at that point for general purpose computers. And the PDP-8 had some other issues. It, um, it actually was fairly low cost prior to the, prior to the microcomputers coming out. It was simple, expandable, and had uh, pretty good engineering. So that, before the personal computer, really made it accessible to many people for, for various uses. But because it was a low complexity machine, it, was, it, it even had a pretty, uh, uh, what do I say, simplistic instruction set. Not many instruction, there were only uh, eight instructions and two registers. And so it was pretty difficult to write complex applications. And, uh, or I guess what I should say is that it was difficult to write applications and it took a lot of programmer time. Well, early on, computers were the expensive part, as you recall, and there was a lot of concern about uh, minimizing computer time and not so much people time. Later on, the people became much more expensive and then the machines, and the PDPA didn't really fit into that model very well. So as far as textbooks goes, there is a, a book called The Art of Digital Design that um, is a good one where they actually went through and designed a computer that was compatible with the PDP-8. So if you wanna find out how to design a PDP-8, that's a good, good book to go to. You can also look for a book called The Ultimate Entrepreneur, the story of Ken Olson and Digital Equipment Corporation if you want more history on the PDP-8. And then I also wanted to mention there are some emulators available if you want to run it on your modern machine. There's the PDP-8E simulator for the Macintosh. There is one for, uh, in Java, so you could run that on a lot of different platforms. And then there's also another one at uh, trailingedge.com, which is a portable one that will run on just about any modern OS. And that's really all I wanted to cover with the DEC PDP-8. Well, I have a question for you. Can okay. you tell us, what have you seen out here on the show floor that maybe tell us about the PDP-8s out there? I think there, we have about five on the floor, maybe? There are quite a few out there. At I, least five, and then there's a couple of the reproductions. I haven't really gone around. <laughs> you caught me, David. I set you up. <laughs> I think most. Of, I think um, like three of them are M's, and I don't know a lot about them. I think yeah. those are later than the later run, and then there's like an industrial one, um, and I'm not sure. But yeah, so we have a, like five of them at least. Yeah, there's um, quite a Running, or well, maybe three running here at the show. So check those out. And one of them yesterday, I think it was the PDP-8. Somebody had put a radio next to. 
Oh yeah, and Kyle, they were playing music. Which we see out the door here. Yeah, yeah. they were playing music on the radio th from the PDPA. Right, because of radio interference. Just, yeah, just from the RFI. So that was pretty cool. Cool. All right, David. I guess you're going to talk about the Altair next. Actually, you know what? Because poor Jeff is sitting there, and you can, you no one can him see him. Next? I think I'll, Jeff. I think I'm going to defer to you. We'll go out of order and let you do some talkings. You know, we've got to wait to the end. How's that sound? That work uh, for you? Actually, can you hear me? Do you, do you want me to start with the uh, the amazing? Yeah, well, well I'll, I'll go last, and we'll. Um... Now we're going to have you talk about the Altair now, since you didn't prepare for it. <laughs> the Altair, okay. Yeah, my yeah, notes are right there. Yeah, yeah. You can just read his notes. All right. Yes, yeah, so you go and take it away with the Amiga, then I'll I'll come in last with the Altair. Okay, sounds good. We'll get these out of order here. Am, am I coming through still? Yeah. Yep. Everybody hear okay, okay? The microphone was cutting out on your end, so I wasn't getting the feedback. So, okay, as long as I'm getting through, that's fine. Yeah, you sound good. All right, wonderful. Well, um, Mega had a pretty interesting history. It started out with the primary or a primary developer of the Atari 800, Jay Miner. Uh, he was working for a company called Amiga. He was working on a project that intended to be the next generation video game system. And then as one of the few fortunate outcomes of the video game crash of 1983, the Amiga was redesigned as a personal computer. So it began a headlong foray into 16-bit computing at the consumer level. After a showing at the 1984 Consumer Electronics Show, Commodore bought the Amiga company and finished the computer as a Commodore product. A year later, the Amiga 1000 was released to the market. Now, the Amiga 1000 has an older co cousin in the form of the Atari 800 uh, for more than the fact that J Minor created them both. Um, from a technical standpoint, just like the Atari 800, the Amiga 1000 has a series of custom chips which worked in symbiosis to produce unique graphic and sound capabilities. The Amiga was considered a true multimedia computer of the 1980s, supporting resolutions which matched television standards of the day. Those standards were typically 640 by 400 pixel resolution for NTSC televisions and 640 by 512 pixel resolution for power European standard. The color palette was 4096 total colors. Most great, mo yeah, excuse me. Most screen resolutions could use any combination of 16 or 32 colors from that full palette. One special low resolution mode called hold and modify or ham as it was called allowed all 4096 colors to display at once when the bitmap was specially coded to do so. Additional overscan screen modes offered a slightly higher resolution, which allowed applications to display graphics from one edge of the monitor bezel to the other. Couple that with four channel true stereo digitized sound and you had advanced consumer level graphics and gaming at a competitive price. This was all possible due to the, hard, due to the hardware configuration. Now the fastest component on the motherboard was actually the graphics chip called Agnes. It was clocked at a whopping 28 megahertz and was the source of the timing for the chipset and the rest of the system. Even though the Amiga 68000 CPU ran at only 7 megahertz, the custom chipset worked together, taking nearly all multimedia processing load off of the CPU and gave the Amiga the ability to dedicate all 7 megahertz towards raw computing needs. The chipset also allowed for preemptive multitasking in the operating system. The Amiga was easily capable of running multiple programs simultaneously, and each program could have its own distinct screen resolution. Now, to do that, the operating system did most of the multi-processing or multi-tasking uh, work, and it was operating system called Amiga DOS. 
It's a combination of a bootstrap component called Kickstart, which roughly equates to the terms of bias in today's computer. And it's coupled with a graphic user interface called Workbench. The Amiga 1000 first booted up Kickstart from a floppy. Then it prompts for the Workbench boot floppy to complete the startup. Later Amiga models had Kickstart and ROM. Now, as mentioned earlier, the Amiga 1000 was considered one of the first consumer level true multimedia, true multitasking computer systems. Its introduction led to the run of an entire line of Amiga models over the years, each new model release providing additional capabilities and configurations. The true television display standard incorporated in the Amiga allowed it to continue to be used in all aspects of home and professional television and video for graphic presentation, video titling, production, and even 24-hour community bulletins on local television channels, all the way up to the year 2009, when the analog television standard officially came to an end. That's basically it in a nutshell. And Jeff, you, um, so Jeff, my co-host on History of Personal Computing, uh, he attended uh, the Vintage Computer Festival East, which was two weeks ago, I think. And, uh, yes. And, and so you, uh, he, his exhibit was the uh, video toaster for the Amiga. So he's quite an enthusiast uh, yeah. of that. And you know what? I don't think there's any Amigas here. The show, I, I did see there's an Amiga 1000 down uh, towards the tail end of the... Really? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's, that'd be a real shame. Yeah. Tucked in the corner, huh? <laughs> What's that? Tucked in the corner, huh? So uh, Amiga I, 1000 down in the end of something. It's down at the end of the table. So, yeah, there is an Amiga 1000 in here. Hey, Jeff, I wanted, to it. I wanted to mention one thing uh, along those lines. I was able to, you mentioned Jay Miner, who's no longer with us. I mean, he died. Yeah, 21 years ago, like, he died. Yeah, it was 94 or something like that? Yes. Yeah. I was able to recently talk with Joe DeCure, who actually was also, he worked with Jay Miner to develop the Amiga. And um, we, he also developed the Atari 800 as well, as did Jay Miner. So uh, I was able to, to set up a follow-up interview with Joe to talk about the Amiga more, you know, and the development of that. So um, that should be pretty interesting. And, yeah, I didn't uh, want to leave any names out, but history, you know, things, certain things bubble to the top in history, and Jay Miner's name floats at the top there when it came to the, 800, the Atari 800 and the Amiga. But right. you know, I didn't want to limit the amount of credit anybody else had. You know, both machines were very formidable. Yeah, and I don't know. I, it sounds like Joe was, you know, very involved, but I, you know, I don't know who did what pieces. But Jay, Jay seems to be the one whose name you hear the most uh, when you hear the Atari 800 and the Amiga. So that's that's basically all. I don't own an Amiga. One day I want to, but so um, so Jeff has his own website called VintageVaults.com, and you can go there and read about his. Uh, his exhibit and his experience at Vintage Computer Festival East and see some pictures of his exhibit and, and others. And there's lots of pictures out there to look at the other show as well. So uh, thanks, Jeff. Thank you. So, so now, uh, so lastly then, we're gonna move into about the Altair. And I think uh, we have one Altair here at the show, right? We only have the one and it's just a case. Well, of course, Lonnie Mims has got in the uh, Computer Museum of America 
<laughs> Make sure to say it right. Has got one, right, Lonnie? Is that, is that you, Lonnie? There. Oh, so <laughs> sorry. So there's Lonnie in the audience, but he's got an alt here over there, doesn't he? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. He's oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> sorry in the light. You look like. So anyway, so I'm going to talk about the uh, the Altier 8800, and um, I'm going to talk about the machine, but uh, I want to frame it appropriately by actually spending a little more time talking about its primary creator, who was named Ed Roberts, and uh, his name is not as well known as Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, and perhaps it, it shouldn't be, but his name does deserve to be way more um, recognized than it, unfortunately it is. Um, Ed had always wanted to become a doctor and he would ultimately become one, but his life first took a few interesting twists and turns, and it produced the beginning of the personal computer revolution. He was born in Miami, Florida in 1941, but when his father went off to the army, Ed and his mother lived with her parents on their farm in Wheeler County, Georgia, which is roughly between Macon and Savannah. He would later return to the farm during his summers to visit his grandparents. In high school, he loved biology and electronics, and he built a small relay-based analog computer to turn lights on and off, and he also built uh, a relay-based controller for an early heart-lung machine at the University of Miami. When Ed decided he wanted to become a doctor, he chose the University of Miami, where he enrolled as a biology major. Um, <clears throat> but a doctor at the university recognized Ed's talent in engineering and suggested that he change his major before entering medical school, or he likely would not be able to pursue that interest later. Or, uh, yeah, that was a fortunate thing, I guess. Ed changed his major to electrical engineering and always felt that the doctor had been correct. So, so he sort of took a turn into engineering versus ultimately a doctor early on. Uh, in any case, he married his first wife, Joan, while in college, and during his junior year, she became pregnant. To support his family, he left school and joined the Air Force in May 1962. After basic training, he attended the Cryptographic Equipment Maintenance School at Lake Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. He did so well, and because of his past electrical engineering studies, that when he completed the course, he was made an instructor at the school. In 1965, Ed was elected for the, uh, selected for the Air Force's Airmen Education and Commissioning Program to complete his college degree and become a commission officer. He attended Oakland, Oklahoma State University in Stillwater and earned an electrical engineering degree in 1968. Ed Roberts then became a commissioned second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. He was assigned to the Laser Division of the Weapons Laboratory at Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Ed was still interested in medical school and looked into it, but at 27 years old, he was told that he was now too old. Ed met Forrest M. Mims III at the Weapons Laboratory and both shared an interest in model rocketry. They became friends and in 1969 decided to form a company together to sell electronic kits for model rockets. Along with two short-lived partners, they formed MITS, Micro Instrumentation and Tele... I can never say this word right. Telemetry <laughs> Systems. In 1971, MITS entered the emerging electronic calculator market with calculator kits, similar to the way Heathkit sold radios and other electronics. By 1973, MITS sold over a million dollars in calculators a year. Ed Roberts had developed over a dozen different models, some programmable, moved the company to a 10,000 square feet building, and had over 100 employees. Um, just to throw this in, I've read and, and heard sometimes where Ed Roberts has been described as a bad businessman. Doesn't sound like it to me, at least what I've read. By early 1974, the retail price of a calculator in a department store had become less than what Ed's cost was to produce his MITS model. His company was suddenly sinking, and with over $300,000 of debt, it was sinking fast. 
Ed Roberts needed a new product and one that was in, as in demand and groundbreaking as the electronic calculator had been. He decided to build a small digital computer. He certainly became aware of Jonathan Titus's Mark 8, featured in the July 1974 issue of Radio Electronics Magazine, but he instantly felt that the Intel 8008 was not powerful enough. Since the Motorola 6800 was not yet available, he chose to design a computer based on Intel's new 8080 microprocessor, which the 8080 was an 8-bit processor versus its predecessors, like the one in the, radio, uh, the Mark 8 was 4-bit. Um, oh, I want to mention, it's important to sort of mention too about like the, the PDP-8 and the, the mini computers. Most people think it's a logical, it was logical, right? You had these room-sized computers and they just kept getting downsized, 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 mini computer, refrigerator size, big desk size, and then ultimately, small desk size. It was just a logical uh, evolution, if you will. And it sort of was, but really what triggered what's out here primarily in personal computers was um, the microprocessor, which then Ed Roberts utilized in the Altair. You know, the, the DEC is not, doesn't have a microprocessor. It's all discrete circuitry, making up its processors and I.O. and RAM and everything else. Um, all right, so now, about the, well, the MITS Altair 8800 microcomputer was featured on the cover of the January 1975 issue of, uh, published in December 74 of Pop Electronics. It was also sold by mail order through ads in other electronic hobbyist magazines. Ed Roberts and MITS had hoped to sell a few hundred build-it-yourself kits, but were surprised when they sold thousands in just the first month. It's often said that people drove all night for their computer. The computer bus designed for the Altair became a de facto standard in the form of the S100 bus, and the first programming language for the machine was Microsoft's founding product, Altair Basic. Many people don't realize Altair was founded and started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to, to make that product. For just $439, the Altair 8800 included everything in one kit, assembly instructions, metal case, power supply, and all the boards and components required to build, quote, the most powerful computer ever presented a, as a construction project in any electronics magazine. It had a two megahertz Intel 8080 microprocessor, and it shipped with just 256 bytes of RAM. That's one-fourth of 1K, which, generally speaking, 1K of RAM can hold one double-spaced page of text. So it, could, it had a quarter of that, which is almost unusable. At its launch, you only had the ability to enter programming instructions through the front panel switches and receive feedback by way of the front panel LEDs. The expansion bus allowed the machine to be expanded into a truly usable state, eventually allowing the addition of RAM, I.O., and other capabilities. As to its historical significance, it created the first microcomputing bus standard, which resulted in a clone by the end of the same year, 1975, the MSI-8080, which there's at least a couple out there to look at, too. There were dozens of other S100 computers to follow into the late 1970s. It is generally considered the world's first commercially successful, mass-produced personal computer, selling somewhere in the range of 2,000-plus units. The whole debate of what was the first personal computer comes into this. Ed Roberts is now widely known and accepted as the, quote, father of the personal computer. Ed and Mitz created an entire microcomputer ec ecosystem, pioneering the first affordable computer, computer retailing, computer company newsletter, the first personal computer user group, and the first computer-sponsored personal computer conference. For a while, Mitz was also the largest producer of computers in the world. By late 76, Ed was tired of his growing management responsibilities, plus he regretted not spending enough time with his children, so he looked for a larger partner. Because uh, of the close relationship between Mitz and Pertect, 
who was then making, who was well known in making their disk drives, um, he looked to them. So then he, he ended up selling Pertech the company for $6 million in stock, where he would to stay on as, I'm not sure as the president, but it's a significant role. But he quickly became dissatisfied with how they managed things, and he resigned. So he took his approximately $3 million and moved his family to a large farm in Wheeler County, Georgia, where he had spent those memorable childhood summers. When Mercer University in Macon opened a new medical school in 1982, Ed applied and was accepted. He graduated with the first class in 1986. In 1988, he completed his residency in internal medicine and at 47 years old, established a practice in nearby Cochrane. He practiced medicine for over 20 years, then died in 2010 at 68 years old. In a joint statement after Ed's death, Bill Gates and Paul Allen said, more than anything, what we will always remember about Ed was how deeply compassionate he was. And that was never more true than when he decided to spend the second half of his life going to medical school <clears throat> and working as a country doctor, making house calls. He'll be missed by many, and we were lucky to have known him. So that's a big part of the story you don't really hear too often. And I think it kind of summarizes another aspect of the American dream, you know, that he lived versus just getting rich. Yeah. Which is good, too. <laughs> Very amazing guy. Amazing guy. Just think about it. He invented the personal computer pretty yeah. much and then became a doctor after that. In many ways, he was sort of like uh, uh, Henry Ford. Mm -hmm. You know, so he, he didn't necessarily invent the personal computer totally, but he made right. it sort of practical and happen. Right. Um, so there'll be links in the show notes to, um, I have a longer version of this uh, called Remembering Ed Roberts. And uh, I actually uh, interviewed Ed Roberts. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, and originally. And when I got involved in computer history and I moved around and stuff, but we had moved back to Florida in 94. And I actually drove to Cochrane, Georgia from Jacksonville, Florida in 1995. And I interviewed Ed Roberts. And so, That's cool. so I have that audio up yeah. on my site and it's actually it's actually part of the archives at the Computer History Museum now. I donated it to them. So that's, yeah, really cool. Yeah, I've heard that. It's, it's real great. Everybody should listen to that. Um, so anyway, <laughs> does anyone have any questions about anything? That was really what we had to present. Do you have anything, Randy or Jeff? No, I just wanted to mention that uh, I did do a Foppy Days podcast on the Altair. So if you want even more detail about the machine, it was one of the early episodes that I did. Uh, Commodore Amiga, it's going to be a while before I get to that one since I'm doing them in date order and it didn't come out for, you know, for a while yet. But, um, and I never did one on the PDP-8, but you guys did one on the Altair as well, right? Yeah, we did, we've done one, ones on the Altair and, uh, and MSI too, right, Jeff? Yes. Separately? Yes. Yeah, a number of S100 computers mm -hmm. that basically, um, you know, the Altair spawned. It, the Altair and the S100 computers, probably the best you could describe them as the, the hobbyist computers. And then, of course, it wouldn't be until generally, arguably, 1977 when the Apple and the Commodore and the TRS-80 came out that sort of those, those were the first line of consumer computers where right. normal people started sort of buying them. So, yeah. all right. How do we do on time? Good? Yeah. Run up my wife's uh, MiFi too much here? <laughs> so that's going to be it for this show. And thank you, everyone, for joining us live and for all of you listening by way of our two podcasts. So you can find Randy and his two regularly scheduled podcasting haunts, the Floppy Days podcast and Antic, the Atari 8-Bit podcast. And plus, Jeff and I can both be found at the History of Personal Computing podcast. But Jeff also has another gig that you may not be aware of called Electric Dreams BBS podcast. Right, Jeff? 
Yes, that's uh, hosted with uh, Mike Whelan. With Mike Whelan. And um, I've been tweeting pictures from the show, so um, of course you may not hear this after the fact, but uh, you can look at my Twitter feed. I guess I'll take the pictures and post them somewhere. Maybe on our site. What do you say, Jeff? Uh, I look forward to them. I want to see more pictures. So thanks again, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>